Lonely song, the song's for you. After Wednesday's meeting, Jess and I were standing outside, and he said to me something like this. You seem to be at peace. There's like this soft glow about you. Do you remember that, Jess? Is that what it was? Something like that? And I was just kind of like, huh? Didn't really, what can I say? What he said made me take an inventory. I had to look at myself, and I thought, well, gee, am I at peace? I know I feel soft. And I felt soft for a long time, years now, softer and softer. I can feel something in my spirit softening. I can feel just something happening that I welcome. But it's also very painful because, you know, soft things are easily damaged, hurt. So the vulnerability of the softness is kind of, you know, a drag. But the softness I welcome because it gives me a compassion and mercy and spirit of forgiveness that is just beyond anything that I have ever known before. You know, it's the kind of thing you look at and you think, yeah, well, that'd be great. And so for me, it's a good thing, the softness. The peace I really had to look at. Outwardly, I don't have any reason to be at peace. But then I thought about that and I thought, well, you know, externally, I really don't have any reason not to be at peace. The truth is that none of us have any reason to be at peace or not be at peace because of external conditions. That is the truth. And that's what this work and all esoteric teachings and esoteric Christianity says over and over and over again. It's not outer events that you need to take refuge in. It's something internal. It's something higher that you need to take refuge in. Peace that relies on external conditions isn't peace. It's no peace at all. It's a temporary calm before the next storm. So you'll not have a soft glow about you from that kind of peace because it'll be gone when circumstances change. And one of the things that we know beyond any shadow of a doubt, that circumstances are going to change just like the weather is. Just like tonight, it's going to be dark. Around five o'clock, it'll start getting dark. That's what's going to happen. I can assure you that that will happen. If you're here, it will start getting dark around 5 o'clock. If you're somewhere else, further north, it'll start getting dark even earlier. If you're further south, it won't be that way. But if you're here, it will start getting dark around 5 o'clock. And then in the morning, it'll start getting light again. And then around noon, it'll be full sunlight. Whether we see it or not, won't matter. But it will be there. It will change. These conditions will change. All outer conditions, all circumstances will change. You can count on that. It arises so that it may pass away. That is the purpose of changing conditions. They arise so that they may pass away. Why certain things continue with us is because we cling to them or we have an aversion to them. We either hold them and try to hang on to them or we push them away because we don't want them. Either one, it causes them to stay. It causes them to recur because there's something that we need to learn. There's something that we need to rise to inside of ourselves that will free us from those recurring conditions, those recurring circumstances. So until Jess said something, I hadn't really given it much thought. On the way home, I checked with Connie. And I said to her, do, do I seem to be at peace to you? She said, yes. And I thought about it, and I thought, well, yeah, I, I am. But I keep on thinking, well, peace means you're supposed to be happy. But I'm not really happy. And peace and happiness don't necessarily have anything to do with one another. <laughs> and we just like to lump everything together, but that's not the way we are. We're very complex, and our states are very complex. You can have peace and be grieving. Both of them are real states. Grief is a real emotion. Peace, I don't know if it's an emotion or not, but whatever it is, it can go along with grief. 
Amazingly, joy and grief can go together. Real emotions have no opposite. Anyway, Paul said the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds. In his letter to the Philippians, chapter 4, verse 7, I have this peace and I don't understand it. And so it really does surpass comprehension. Surpasses all comprehension. I don't understand it. I, it does not make sense to me. It's not logical. It's not of this world. It's a different kind of peace. A peace that comes not from things, not from conditions being lined up properly, not from the stars being aligned properly, not from your friends being nice to you, not from getting a good Christmas present or not having trouble in your life. This peace is beyond all of that. And it truly is not something that can be understood, comprehended in a normal, ordinary way of comprehending. Because it is not of this world. It does not come through the five senses. It does not belong to the five senses. It belongs to the inner senses. It belongs to something else. It belongs to something higher. Something that we are able to touch if we're willing to make the effort to get ourselves in a place where influences from above can reach us. Once I had a yoga teacher that told me she meditated to reach a state of bliss. Well, that didn't appeal to me. It seemed to me far too self-serving at the time. I don't want to meditate so that I can have bliss. I meditate because it's work. I meditate to get rid of sankharas. I meditate to burn off karma. I meditate to concentrate. I meditate to reach a state to calm the mind or leave the mind behind so that I can reach a state where I'm able to be influenced by something higher, something more conscious. That's why I meditate. And if bliss comes from that, okay. But if it doesn't, and it usually doesn't, then that's okay too. I'm not going to stop meditating because I don't get bliss. I'm not going to stop meditating because it doesn't feel good. In other words, I'm going to meditate because it's work. It's spiritual work. I'm not meditating to unstress. I'm not meditating to feel good. I'm not meditating to heal my body. I'm meditating because it is spiritual work. And this is something that I need for my soul and my spirit and my mind to renew in me a steadfast mind, as it were. A steadfast mind. Think of what that means. A steadfast mind. And we don't have steadfast minds. But if you meditate with the right heart, with the right intention, you will gain a steadfast mind. Yes, it'll be hard work, but you can do it. And that's why I recommend meditation. I recommend Vipassana meditation because it really does do that. It really helps you to concentrate and it helps you to have a steadfast mind. And it is work. It's not fun. It's work. And sometimes it can be great. But most of the time, you know as well as I do, it can really be hard work. It can be a big challenge. That's why so many people quit. Bliss, perfect happiness, great joy. That's what the dictionary defines bliss as. Perfect happiness, great joy. Also, a state of spiritual blessedness. Typically, that reached after death. And I thought, <laughs> okay, well, I don't really have a lot of interest in that. But if you'll take that esoterically, and you'll say that it's a spiritual state of blessedness typically reached after death, the last bit may seem strange, but esoterically, it is true. It is absolutely true. It is a state of spiritual blessedness reached after death. The second birth or rebirth is also reached after death. We don't speak of physical death now. That takes no effort. 
Everybody is going to die. Anybody can die. It doesn't take any effort. I know, when you read the Darwin Awards or you look at A Thousand Ways to Die or whatever, and it looks like some people really go out of their way to kill themselves. <laughs> but it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to take this great effort. I mean, you look at some of the things that people do and it's like, that's just not wise. I saw one where the guy, he had this homemade M80 put in his mouth. He was playing chicken with his friend. And a homemade M80 in his friend's mouth. And he had the third friend light them both. They're, so they're holding them in their, between their teeth. They're holding them in their mouths. And he said, whoever spits it out first is the chicken. So the other guy spits it out. Well, this guy, the guy who invented this whole stupid game, and one of the things he was doing was, let's put hot sauce in our eyes and see how long we can stand it. Whoever gives up first, you know, and washes the hot sauce out, he's the chicken. Well, this is, that was his first thing. No, that was his, yeah, his first thing. Then his second thing was taking, you know, these clamps uh, that they put on for car chargers and putting them on his nipples to see who could stand it the longest. You know, you see, like, we're all shaking our heads because we're old. Yeah. <laughs> these guys are young. These are the kind of guys they send to war. Wow. You know, these are the kind of guys who... <laughs> you know, your son is uh, going into service. But anyway, uh, you know, I'm not going to say they need to go to war. What, I, I don't think anybody needs to go to war physically. I think, we, I think we need to go to war spiritually, but I don't think we need to go to war physically. So I'm not going to agree with that, but that's just me. And, if, you know, I'm not disagreeing with you, but it's like inside of me, I think there's a higher way, and I want to hold to that. So... The third thing was this M80, this homemade M80, which is like this huge, big, 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 big firecracker thing. You know, it's like maybe two and a half inches long, three inches long, and about half an inch in diameter. And he's got this thing in his mouth, and they, the guy lights both fuses at the same time. They're standing there looking at each other. Well, the one guy spits it out. He goes, that's it, I'm done. Pooh, he spits it out. Well, the other guy, ah, he won, you know. So, you know, in his big victory thing, he goes, ah, and it goes right down his throat. And sure enough, it's stuck in his throat, and boom, and he's dead. So, you know, you look at things like that, and you think, okay, that was unwise. You know, that was, <laughs> that was really unwise. And, you know, and I thought, and i got to tell you that this really, not just that, but this program really shocked me of how unwise, how foolish people can be. And another thing that got me was that, there were people who were just really spiteful, vengeful, hateful, nasty. Like there was this one woman who, she was a motocross rider, and she was, had her competitor, and they were both racing. Well, the competitor missed a turn or did, made a mistake, and she won. The other girl was just one away from the championship, and whoever got the championship you know, had access to you know, win at least $10,000 and maybe $30 million a year in contracts. You know, between 10 and, what was it, 10 and, I think the, the, the prize was 10000 but she would be earning between 25000 and $30 million a year, depending on how many sponsors she got and all the rest of it. And so the other one who won, she wasn't going to take any chances, so she decides, well, I'm going to fix her in her next race. So she takes a bolt and sticks it in the chain of her bike, and the girl takes off. Well, this girl's standing there watching. The girl takes off, and boom, they both start off. Well, sure enough, it worked, and the chain get, broke and came flying off the bike. Well, unfortunately, the girl who had put the bolt in the chain was standing nearby, and the chain acted like a serrated knife, wrapped around her neck, slit her throat, cut her carotid artery, and she was dead in minutes. I looked at that and I went, ooh. You know there is such a thing as karma, but you don't usually see instant karma. You know, you think that's just like a breakfast cereal. <laughs> but this was like 
instant. It was like instant. There was another girl, and she was an American girl in Australia, and she was not a nice person. You know, she'd get out in the water and, oh, shark, shark, and everybody'd come running and, oh, just kidding, you know. And she would say nasty things to people. She was just not nice. She was very needy, needed a lot of attention, very unkind person, doing a lot of things, saying a lot of things, putting a lot of people down, spreading a lot of rumors, just slandering, saying nasty things about people. Well, she goes out for a swim, and while she's swimming, she swallows some water. Well, what happens in Australia, there's these little jellyfish, and they're just nasty. Their sting is a nerve toxin. And it went down her throat, and it stung all the way down into her stomach. When she came out of the water, of course, couldn't talk because it had, her larynx had been swollen shut and by the nerve toxin, and everything was just rip, rip, rip all the way down. And she came up, and people, oh, what? Now what? You know, they, nobody believed her. Nobody could imagine there was any, you know, she'd been so nasty, and people pretty much had it with her. So they all just kind of gathered around. It's like, well, what? What? And she couldn't say anything, you know. So, boop, she died. And they went, oops, I guess she's dead. And I thought, you know, we forget that the state that we habitually inhabit, that state becomes what attracts our life. Always looking for something wrong with people, always dissing people, always destroying, always tearing down, always doing those things, it's not a good thing. You know, it's a habitual state and it will attract unpleasant things into your life. And I had forgotten that. It's not up to me to stop anyone. It's up to me to do what is right, to learn how to love better consciously and to live in the light as far as possible and to inspire and encourage others to do the same. That's my job. My job is not correcting other people. My job is not... And, of course, my job is praying for them as well. But, and I do that. So, anyway, this whole thing about the state of bliss, the peace, the happiness, is something that can be reached now. If we're willing to put forth the proper effort, it's not something you have to wait until you're dead to get this blessed state. It's something that you can have now. It's not a state of spiritual blessedness that you have to wait till you physically die. It's something that you can have now, but you are going to have to die. There's something in you that must die. There's something in you that must be made passive. And that is your propensity for negative emotions, your propensity for wickedness, your propensity for self-love. These things must go. They must be given up. And that's the effort that we need to be making. To make the effort, we must first have right knowledge. What are the practical requirements for attaining bliss? Is it meditation? Well, sometimes, but that may not be that practical. You know, what about when you can't meditate? What about when you're right in the middle of it? And you're, what about then? What about on your bus? When the two kids are fighting, where's your bliss then? Are you going to sit down and meditate while they beat each other's brains out? No. So last week we talked about the poor in spirit being blissed and attaining the kingdom of heaven or an ever-expanding state of consciousness. You'll notice now that I've changed blessed for blissed because they mean the same thing. Blessed, blissed. Some Bibles actually say blissful is the man who is poor in spirit. So I'm changing it to blissed. Blissed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. That's Matthew 5.5. 5. The word meek, meaning gentle, teachable, one who does not resent his enemies. I want to pay special attention to this last bit. One who does not resent his enemies. Think about this. One who does not resent his enemies. This brings into focus the strange esoteric teaching 
But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Well, come on. We all know that's wacko. We all know that it's hard enough for us to love our friends. But to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us? That's in Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, if you're interested in looking it up. I suggest you read the whole chapter, Matthew. It's a good read. Read the whole thing. Or, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. That's found in Luke chapter 6, verse 27. So there are two different versions of that. The only way to love those who hate and persecute you is to be meek, to be gentle, to be teachable, and finally, not to resent what they say and do. This is the real trick. Yes, you can be meek, you can be humble, you can be teachable, you can be gentle, but to not resent what people say and do when they say and do things that are unkind, that's taking it a step further. And that's what I want to do. I want to take it a step further. This work might say, don't react mechanically, but that's not strong enough for me. I don't want it to be, don't react mechanically. A resentful man must always react mechanically, automatically, because he's identified through resentment. What is resentment? It's to feel bitterness or indignation. Indignation. When do we get indignant? We get indignant when our self-love has been wounded. We get indignant when our pride has been tarnished. We get indignant when our vanity has been exposed. We get indignant when our negativity and our self-love is brushed against or stepped on in any way were diminished in any way. A rich man, or an identified man, will have his center of gravity in his goodness. That's what makes him rich. You remember last week we talked about the rich young man, the rich young ruler, and he went away sad because he had great wealth. And we said it's not possessions, not necessarily possessions. It is virtue, his virtues, his goodness, his talents, his meritoriousness, his position in the world, his appearance. Some people take great pride in their appearance, his cleverness, and his possessions on one side, or his failures, his setbacks, his negative moods on the other side. You can be just as identified with your failures and your setbacks and your negative moods as you can be with your meritoriousness. Some people make their whole lives about their failures. I know a girl who got a B-plus on a paper, and she was not happy about it. Like a B-plus? Okay, she struggled with the paper, but she got a B-plus on it. She wasn't happy about it. So she says, well, professor showed me how I could get it up to an A. <laughs> okay, I mean, if you have the time and you have the inclination, you know, and you're inspired to do that, great. But if not, so what? What is important in life? I'll tell you what's important. Not a B-plus. Get a B-plus on how much are you loving. Get a B-plus on how much are you forgiving. Get a B-plus on how much are you externally considering other beings. Get a B-plus on that. Work that to an A. That's something that's worth working for, according to esoteric teachings. According to the world, it's stupid. According to the world, you're an idiot to do that. But, according to esoteric teachings, that's the path to life. A rich man will be identified with his pictures of himself carried around in a psychological album of himself. He'll constantly leaf through it. Even in life's most crowded moments, he'll depend on actual mirrors as well. You'll notice that some people have an affinity for mirrors. I look in a mirror about twice a day. I brush my teeth in the morning in front of a mirror and I shave, and I brush my teeth at night, and that's it. But you know, the thing about a mirror is it can be used in two ways. And one of the ways is people use it to look in the mirror and admire themselves. Notice, when you look in a mirror, 
what you see, what's there, you are not really that. And so you see, now the mirror can be used as a work exercise. You look in the mirror and remind yourself, that is not I. That is not what I am. That is a shadow of what I am. All this that can be seen, all this can be apprehended through the five senses is simply a shadow of what you really are. The real you exists in another realm. The real you is casting this shadow. How people perceive this shadow, many times it's up to them. It has nothing whatever to do with you. And many times they're accurate. And if so, then you have something to work on. So work on it. That habit of looking in the mirror and saying, that is not I, strengthens self-remembering. But the habit of looking in the mirror and admiring yourself, that weakens self-remembering because it causes identifying. You start to identify with that. People who look in the mirror and go, oh, the lines, oh, this, oh, the gray hair. That's identification, people. It's the same thing, whether you're admiring yourself or dissing yourself. It's the same thing. You're identifying with what is not you. You are not that. If a rich man could change his habitual feeling of I, that's what his habitual feeling of I is, it's his center of gravity. Your center of gravity is your habitual feeling of I, your habitual feeling of who I am. That is your center of gravity. If you could change that, you would gradually become less and less identified. This is what esoteric teachings tell us. And you have proved this to be true. But you must not stop with just that proof. You must continue. Don't think that you're not rich just because you can find somebody who's got more. Don't think that you're not rich. Do not fall into that trap. When it talks about the rich man, it's talking about you and me. It's talking about us. You're not nearly poor enough yet. How poor do you need to be? Well, you need to be poor in spirit. That's how poor you need to be. Because those are the people who enter the kingdom of heaven, the expanding state of consciousness. Those who are so humble, so poor in spirit, that they're like little children and they can enter. They're not putting on any airs. They're not pretending to be something that they're not. They're not seeking their own. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. And that's the kind of poverty that we're looking for. I'm not asking you to give up everything you have. I'm asking you to give up everything you have, meaning internally, not externally. If some of it goes or if some of it comes, that's neither here nor there. You are not that, and that is not important. There's no sense in identifying with that. I guarantee you that will change. I guarantee you that will go. I guarantee you, you will leave that. But if you lay up for yourself a treasure in a higher state of consciousness, that will always be there for you, waiting for you. And all you have to do is enter that higher state of consciousness, and that treasure is yours again. Leave the state of consciousness, and you leave that treasure there. We spend far too much time in our internal gallery admiring our pictures of ourselves. Far too much time. If you spend half the time that you used to spend in there, it's still far too much time. There are other rooms in the house, but we don't turn the lights on in them. You know, other rooms besides this gallery, this well-lit gallery with all these wonderful pictures of ourselves and our meritoriousness and our virtues and, oh, I'm this and, oh, I did that and, oh, I'm so much better than that person over there and, oh, look at me. All of that. There are other rooms. We don't like what contradicts our internal gallery of pictures. And so we keep the lights dim or off in those rooms. As a matter of fact, if it were up to us, we'd remove the light bulbs altogether and bar the door so that no one could go in there because we don't want anyone seeing that. From this room of self-love, we find all manner of cause to identify with resentment. When we are admiring our internal gallery, our album of ourselves, we have all kinds of reasons for resentment, all kinds of reasons. 
We become mired in resentment, and we can't leave the room, even if we wished it. We're stuck in the mire. We're stuck in it. We get First we get ankle deep, then we get knee deep, then we get waist deep, then we get up to our armpits, then we're up to our necks in it. And sooner or later it sucks us down and kills us. Morris Nichols said, Our preoccupation absorbs too much force and becomes an obsession or some form of fanaticism and starves something else. This is about balance. The fourth way is the way of the balanced man. Esoteric Christianity is the way of the balanced man. Moderation. Before we may enter the conscious circle of humanity, the kingdom of heaven, an expanding, ever-expanding state of consciousness, we must study and understand where we are unbalanced. Plenty of material for self-observation here, where we're unbalanced. Just look at your day and notice what takes too much energy and what areas starve as a result of that imbalance. These are the practical areas in which you must begin to work if you wish to develop. If you don't want to develop, then go have a party. Go do whatever you want to do. We don't have anything to say to each other, really. My life is about people who wish to develop. I want to encourage them, inspire them, share with them ways to do that. And I want to do that myself. If that's not what you want, what do we have to do with each other? If you don't want a hamburger, don't go to McDonald's, don't go to Burger King, don't go to Wendy's, don't go to those places if you don't want what they have. If you don't want what I have, don't come to me. But this is what I have, this is what I want, this is what I'm for. This is my purpose here. This is why I do what I do. Balancing influences from higher are constantly bombarding us, esoteric teachings tell us, but we must learn to submit to them. If we can bear to be changed, we will hear them. If we can bear to be changed, but it's very difficult for us to bear to be changed. Think of it. It's very difficult. It takes a lot to withstand the changes that must happen in us. If we can bear to be changed, then we begin to hear these influences. We begin to hear what they're saying to us. But few can bear to be changed. How we attain this inner state of bliss is through meekness, through the absence of resentment, not outer posturing or a modest look. It's not the way you dress. It's not the, the face you put on. It's not that you hold your head down or you have posturing. Oh, no, no. That, that I remember one time in school, there was a girl who gave a talk in ministerial school. And I said, geez, Sandy, that was really great. And she puts this, oh, just this modest look on her face. It was just like posy, posy, you know. Like, oh, it wasn't me. It was God. And I thought, you know, I just felt like I needed a shower. It just wasn't real. You know what I mean? Don't do that. That's not meekness. That's not gentleness. That's not the absence of resentment. If we resent, we can't practice external considering. It's impossible. You cannot practice external considering if you are resenting. I don't care what you say. Someone who says, well, he says he doesn't have a problem with you, and he says that he has forgiven you, and he says that he loves you, and he says that blah, 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 blah. But every time I mention your name, he has all this resentment. It's like, well, then the rest of it's a lie. There's no way to get around it. If you have resentment, then the rest of it is a lie. The external considering is just posturing. It's a lie. The resentment will block it every single time. No one, no one can be considerate towards a person he resents. It can't happen. Considerateness leads to conscious love. These are the steps. Absence of resentment, conscious considering, and that takes you to love your enemy. <laughs> That's how you get there. 
You want to know how to get there? This is how to get there. First, you remove all resentment from your being. All resentment. But he did this and she did that, and I'm right, I'm right, I'm right. Well, yes, you may be right, but you are still resentful. And that will stand in the way of conscious considering. And that will bar the door to loving your enemy, conscious love. As you tread these steps, much will be balanced in you. Much will be developed in you. Many other rooms in your internal house will have to be lighted, and you'll have to start expanding into them and get out of this gallery of self, wonderful pictures of how great you are, or you're not so bad even. You know, there are some people who are just comfortable with, hey, I'm not so bad. They don't even have to be very meritorious. They're just not so bad, as long as there's somebody else who's nastier. They're happy. That's good enough for me. You still have to get into these other rooms. Your ordinary feeling of I will gradually be transformed. Your consciousness will be increased as you move out of your internal gallery. We talk about increasing your consciousness all the time, but what does it mean? Morris Nichols said, conscious love clearly implies consciousness. And a means of attaining it begins with self-observation. If you want consciousness, the means of obtaining it, or one of the means of obtaining it, is through self-observation. This does not mean obsessing over our internal pictures, <laughs> but seeing what they cover, what we keep in the dark rooms that we don't want to visit. Remember that all of this esoteric teaching is about one thing and one thing only, consciousness. But what? Consciousness of what? what for what purpose? To what end? Conscious love. How do they say conscious love in the Gospels, in the Bible? Agape. They say, yes, they do say agape. Agape is, but that's not what they say. What they say is, love your enemy. That is conscious love. Look, anyone can love their friend. Well, okay, anyone can't love their friends. You all have the potential to do it, but not everyone does love their friends. Not all the time. But to love your enemy, to love God, to love your neighbor as yourself, to love your enemy. This is a very strange teaching. But this is the ultimate goal of all esoteric teachings. This is the ultimate goal of all religions worthy of the name. This is your goal. This is your purpose. This is what it means to expand your consciousness, to love your enemy. Which means, don't resent him for what he says and does. You are the best.